0: CHAPTER FIVE OF MOLLY BROWN'S JUNIOR DAYS BY NELL SPEED. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. VARIOUS HAPPENINGS Guilty or innocent, Minerva Higgins displayed an inscrutable face next day, and the juniors, lacking all necessary evidence, were obliged to admit themselves outwitted. But they let it be known that jokes of that class were distinctly foreign to Wellington notions, and woe be to the author of them if her identity was ever disclosed. In the meantime, Molly was busy with many things. As usual, she was very hard up for clothes, and was concocting a scheme in her mind for saving up money enough to buy a new dress for the junior prom in February. She bought a china pig in the village large enough to hold a good deal of small change, and from time to time dropped silver through the slit in his back he's a safe bank she observed to her friends because the only way you can get money out of him is to smash him the pig came to assume a real personality in the circle for some unknown reason he had been christened martin luther the girls used to shake him and guess the amount of money he contained Sometimes they wrote jingles about him and Judy invented a dialogue between Martin Luther and herself which was so amusing that its fame spread abroad and she was invited to give it many times at spreads and fudge parties. The scheme that had been working in Molly's mind for some weeks at last sprung into life as an idea and seizing a pencil and paper one day she sketched out her notion of the plot of a short story. It was not what she herself really cared for, but what she considered might please the editor who was to buy it as a complete story and the public who would read it. There were mystery and love, beauty and riches in Molly's first attempt. Then she began to write. But it was slow work. The ideas would not flow as they did for letters home and for class themes. She found great difficulty in expressing herself. Her conversations were stilted and the plot would not hang together. I never thought it would be so hard, she said to herself when she had finished the tale and copied it out on legal cap paper. And now for the boldest act of my life. With a triumphant flourish of the pen, she rolled up the manuscript and marched across the courtyard to the office of Professor Green. Come in, he called quite gruffly in answer to her knock. But when she entered, he rose politely and offered her a seat. Sitting down again in his revolving desk chair, he looked at her very hard. I know you will think I have the most colossal nerve, she began, when you hear why I have called. But I really need advice, and you've been so kind, so interested, always. What is it this time? he interrupted kindly. More money troubles? No, not exactly, although of course I am always anxious to earn money. Who isn't? But I have a riding bee in my head i've had it ever since last winter although i confine myself mostly to verse molly paused and blushed she felt ashamed to discuss her poor rhymes with this learned man nearly a dozen years older than she was there's no money in poetry she went on and i thought i would switch off to prose i have written a short story and i hope you won't be angry i've brought it over for you to look at i knew you looked over some of judith's stories Of course, I shan't be angry, child. I'm glad to help you, although I am not a fiction writer and therefore might hardly be thought competent to judge. Let's see what you have. He held out his hand for the manuscript. On second thought, he continued, suppose you read it aloud to me. Girls' handwriting is generally much alike. Hard to make out. Molly, trembling with stage fright, her face crimson, began to read. The professor, resting his chin on his interlocked fingers, turned his whimsical brown eyes full upon her and never shifted his gaze once during the entire reading, which lasted some twenty-five minutes. When she had finished, Molly dropped the papers in her lap and waited. Well, what do you think of it? Please, don't mince matters. Tell me the truth. The professor came back to life with a start. She knew at once that he had not heard a word. Oh, I beg your pardon, he said. Very good, very good indeed. Suppose you leave the manuscript with me. I'll look it over again tonight. She rose to go. After all, she had no right to complain, since she had asked this favor of a very busy man, but she did wish he had paid attention. Wait a moment, Miss Brown. There was something I wanted to say. What was it now? He rubbed his head and then thrust his hands into his pockets. Oh, yes, this is what I wanted to say. Have an apple? A flat Japanese basket on the table was filled with apples. Excuse my not passing the basket, but they roll over. Take several. Help yourself. He made Molly take three, one for Nance, one for Judy, and one for herself. Then he saw her to the outer door, bowing silently, all the time like a man in a dream. The next morning, the manuscript was returned to Molly by the professor after the class in literature. It was folded into a big envelope and contained a note. The note had no beginning and was signed E.G. This is what it said. Since you wish my true opinion of this story, I will tell you frankly that it is decidedly amateurish. The style is heavy and labored and the plot mockishly sentimental and mock heroic. Try to think up some simple story and write it out in simple language. Do not employ words that you are not in the habit of using. Be natural and express yourself as you would if you were writing a letter to your mother write about real people and real happenings not about impossibly beautiful and rich goddesses and superbly handsome fearless gods such people do not really exist you know and you are supposed to be painting a word picture of life you have talent but you must be willing to work very hard good writing does not come in a day any more than good piano playing or painting i would add be yourself unaffected sincere and your style will be perfect Molly wept a little over this frank expression of criticism although there did seem to be an implied compliment in the last line she reread the story and blushed for her commonplaceness surely there never had been written anything so inane and silly for a long time she sat gazing at the white peak of Fujiyama on the Japanese scroll simple and natural indeed she exclaimed it's much harder than the other way unaffected and sincere. That's not easy either. She sighed and tore the story into little bits, casting it into the waste paper basket. That's the best place for you, she continued, apostrophizing her first attempt at fiction. Nobody would ever have laughed or cried over you. Nobody would even have noticed you. My trouble is that I try too hard. I'm always straining my mind for words and ideas. Now, when I write letters, how do I do? I let go. I never worry. Can a story be written that way? How now, Mistress Molly, called Judy, bursting into the room. Why are you lingering here in the house when all the world's afield? Get thee up and go hence with me into the green woods where we are to have tea, probably for the last time before the winter's call. Who's we? asked Molly. Why, the usual crowd and a few others from Beta Phi House. "'But you'll never have enough teacups to go around, child,' objected Molly. "'Oh, yes, we shall. "'There are two other tea baskets coming from Beta Phi. "'There will be plenty and some over besides. Rosamond Chase and Millicent Porter were so taken with my basket last year "'that they each bought one. "'Of course, Millicent's is much finer than mine or Rosamond's, "'I dare say, but I don't think I want to go, Judy.' the truth was molly never felt in sympathy with those two beta phi girls who represented an element in college she did not like they dressed a great deal for one thing especially millicent porter the girl who had sublet judith blount's apartment the year before now molly i think you're unkind burst out judy she never could endure even small disappointments they are awfully nice girls and they want to know you better they said they did Well, why don't they come and see me? That's easy. Judy did not reply. She was pulling down all the clothes in the closet in a search for Molly's tam and sweater. She was in one of her queer excited moods. Could it be that Judy thought the sparkling coterie from Queens was being honored by these two rich young persons from Beta Phi? Molly rejected the suspicion almost as soon as it entered her mind. No, it was simply that poor old Judy was obsessed with a desire to get into the Shakespeareans, and by courting the most influential members, she thought she could make it. Molly pulled her slender length from the depths of the Morris chair where she had been lolling. Very well, she said resignedly. I was meditating on my ambitions when you broke in on me. You are a very demoralizing young person, Judy. Judy laughed. She made a charming picture in her scarlet tam and sweater. Come along, she cried, and ambitions be hanged. She seized her tea basket under one arm and a box of gingersnaps under the other. Why, Judy, I am really shocked at you, exclaimed Molly. I think I'll have to give you another shaking up before long. You're getting lax and lazy. Nothing of the sort. I only want to enjoy life while the weather is good. It's lots easier to think of ambitions on rainy days. The other girls were waiting on the campus, the Williamses, Margaret and Jessie, Nance, and presently the two Beta Phi girls. Rosamond Chase was a plump, rather heavy blonde type, always dressed to perfection and bright enough when she felt inclined to exert her mind. Millicent Porter was quite the opposite in appearance, small, wiry, with a prominent, sharp-featured face prominent nose prominent teeth and rather bulging eyes she talked a great deal in a highly pompous tone and her voice always slurred over from one statement to another as if to ward off interruption she seemed much amused at this little escapade in the woods quite bohemian and informal the queen's girls could hardly explain why she appeared so patronizing It was her manner more than what she said, although Margaret insisted that it was because she monopolized the conversation. We didn't go to listen to a monologue, Margaret thundered later when they were discussing the tea party. We came to hear ourselves talk. What surprised Molly was the attention that the young person of unlimited wealth bestowed upon her. Come and sit beside me, Miss Brown, and tell me about Kentucky, she ordered. I'm afraid I haven't the gift of language, replied Molly, without budging from her seat on a log. Ask Margaret Wakefield. She's the only conversationalist in the crowd. I suppose Mohammed must go to the mountain then, observed Miss Porter, and she moved graciously over to the log where she regaled Molly with a great deal of wordy talk. If she's going to do all the conversing, it might as well be on something interesting, thought Molly, and she started Millicent on the topic of silver work. This young woman, rich beyond calculation, had an unusual talent which had not been neglected. She worked in silver. Her natural medium, Edith had observed when she heard of it. She could beat out chains and necklaces, rings of antique patterns, beautiful platters with enameled centers with all the skill of a real silversmith. Molly listened with polite interest to Millicent's lengthy description of her art. There was often an unconscious flattery in the sympathetic attention Molly gave to other people's talk. It had the effect of loosening tongues and brought forth confidences and heart secrets. She was a good listener and the repository of many a hidden thought. I am only going to college, you know, to please Papa, Millicent was saying. He thinks I should be finished off like a piece of statuary or a new house. I would much rather do things with my hands. I can't see how I am to be benefited by all these classics. In the sort of life I shall lead, they won't do me any good. Society people never quote Latin and Greek or make learned references to early Roman history and things of that sort. It isn't considered good form. Modern novels are the only things people read nowadays, but Papa is determined. Now, with silver work, it's quite different. I love it. I love to make beautiful things. I have just finished A Grapevine Chain. The workmanship is exquisite my sitting room is my studio you know and i work there when i'm not busy with stupid books you seem interested do you know anything about silver work molly admitted her ignorance on the subject but millicent did not pause to listen her voice slurred over from the question to her next outburst i like beautiful rich colors i intend to design all the costumes for the next shakespearean performance if i had been born in a different sphere in life i should have divided my time between silver work and costuming i can draw too but it's more designing than anything else then Millicent, encouraged by molly's sympathetic blue eyes lowered her voice and plunged into confidences the truth is she said we were not so er well well to do two generations ago my great-grandfather was an italian silversmith isn't it interesting he was really an artist in his way and made wonderful vessels for the church crucifixes and things like that i tell mamma i believe her grandfather's soul has entered into my body but that isn't all now if i tell you this will you promise never to breathe it it's really a family secret but it accounts for my love of rich beautiful things i can sew you know i adore to embroider if i had to i could easily make all my own clothes but that's nothing to be ashamed of broke in molly no no that isn't the secret the secret is where i got the taste for such things you promise not to mention this i promise replied molly gravely repressing the smile that for an instant hovered on her lips the silversmith grandfather had a brother who was a merchant he had a shop in florence where he sold all sorts of beautiful fabrics velvets and brocades and lots of antique things no doubt it was an antique shop thought molly mamma remembers it well and the shop is still there today but it's in other hands molly felt much amusement of this explanation of heredity it would not be difficult to add a few lines to Millicent's small thin face and place it on the shoulders of the old silversmith or of his brother, the dealer in antiques. How would they feel if they could hear this granddaughter conversing about society and the classics? But I have rattled on. Here, I have told you two family secrets, but of course they will go no farther. You know more about me than any girl in Wellington. Won't you come over to dinner with me Saturday evening and see my studio? i am so sorry said molly but i have an engagement to try to write a sincere natural simple short story she added in her mind oh dear what a nuisance can you come sunday they have horrid early dinner sunday but no matter molly was obliged to accept anxious as she was to keep out of the beta phi crowd by the way do you act asked millicent abruptly a little answered molly and that ended the tea party in the evening, Judy was slightly cold to Molly. It was almost imperceptible, so subtle was the change, and Molly herself was hardly aware of it until her friend, stretched on the couch reading, suddenly closed her book with a snap and remarked, "'Considering you dislike the Beta Phi girls, you certainly manage to monopolize one of them.'" "'Judy!' remonstrated Nance, shocked at this unaccountable exhibition of temperament. Molly said nothing whatever and presently she slipped off to bed. We've all got our faults, she kept saying to herself, but she was bitterly hurt nevertheless. End of chapter 5 Recording by D. R. Baker Robinson